Neighborhood Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. And uh, yeah, I have the privilege of sharing this morning. And uh, we're in the middle of Lent, week four, evidently. I, I grew up in a tradition that didn't really pay attention to Lent. I actually, I never went to church growing up until I was a, a teenager and ended up there myself, kind of on my own. And even then, Lent hasn't been part of my uh, life until more recently, when we start looking at kind of the liturgical calendar and events. So, uh, you know, I, the whole thing with what I know, of course, about Lent is what most people know. If you they do news articles and stories on it every year, like the ashes on the forehead, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, which seems kind of macabre. It's like, you know, like you are nothing but ashes and you will die, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it's always kind of struck me as odd. Um, I recently came across kind of a, some historical information I'd never really uh, uh, heard before, talking about the early church. And now the, the belief and the hope that comes from the idea of a, a bodily resurrection, like exemplified in like Jesus being resurrected, was a big part of the early church's just whole MO, what they talked about. It was uh, a big part of their belief and their hope and at the core of their community and this was well known. So, in fact, it got to the point where when they're being persecuted by, like, the Romans, for example, um, the Romans knew of this and didn't want people to be attracted to martyrdom, so they would do things to discourage them. So, like, if someone's martyred, they would scatter their pieces as widely as possible. And one Roman decree uh, was put out there that martyrs would be burned and their ashes scattered in the Rhine, so their particles were scattered and they wouldn't have the hope of bodily resurrection. That it was, martyrdom meant extinction. So like the early church had to go through some thinking, like, oh, what do we believe? Like, what, what does this mean? Like, when we think about bodily resurrection, what if, like, our, our parts are separated? And they got to thinking about how, well, we have a God and, and despite what you think about the mechanics of creation, whether you are kind of a young earth person or uh, you're, you're the aeons, eons of history back in time, at some point, everything starts out really at the particle level, the dust, right? And there has to be this divine spark for human consciousness and creation. And so you have this divine moment of creativity so ashes to ashes, they're like, you know what? If God can do that at one point, God can do that again. That our hope is still in this person of Jesus Christ. And ashes to ashes isn't this thing of you're nothing and you die. But it is, there was a moment, movie, our life represents a movement from divine, creative, life-giving moment uh, 
to another divine moment of life creation. So it represents something really beautiful. And in between is also life. Ashes to ashes, it's all about life. So we're talking about that this morning. And nothing embodies this more for the people of Jesus' time than really the Jewish scriptures in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel uh, chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read the whole thing because i got a number of stories in here today. But Ezekiel is given a vision. He says the spirit takes him out to a place, a valley that is just covered with white, dry bones. And (laughs) the spirit tells him, prophesy to these bones. Tell them to live. God is going to do this thing and they will live. And I can't help but think, I mean, that is the toughest pulpit assignment in history. <laughs> like it's a dead, it's like the deadest of dead churches or the deadest like organization. It's like, it's just dead bones, right? And, but he does it, he prophesies and he has this vision of flesh returning and life returning and those dead bones become live. And this is to a Jewish nation that is, has been enslaved and pressed. The parts are scattered to the wind and they have no hope. And, you know, and I heard one, like, teaching on this, or read one teaching on this, that was kind of classic youth pastor fashion. Um, you know, it's like talking about anthropologists and archaeologists digging up bones and interpreting the lives of individuals, how tall they were, what, what they ate, whether they played sports, um, the nature of their dental care, things like that. And the lesson was, you know, so live a life so that your bones tell a good story. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, there's more to it, though. It's like, this story is saying something different. Now, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good lesson in life. Yeah, sure, live so that you t- leave a good story, right? I'm not going to knock that down. But this is talking about the impossible, this is talking about miraculous. These weren't, ju- these weren't just bones. I mean, bones are bones. They're, I think to the modern mind, we're like, they're dead. But these are white bones. I mean, they've been sitting in the sun. They're bleached. They're dry. I mean, the, the insinuation is that uh, there's not even marrow to them. There's no seeds for life, for plant or animal, no nutrients. But the only way this is happening is if there's a divine creation of life and this happens. And I mean, this, this isn't the, the, the Jewish nation's future in their history now of coming out of exile and returning and their nation being recreated, their oppressed people. And the whole reason, it's reiterated a number of times through this, but like in verse 13, it says, Then you, my people, will know I'm your Lord. Then you will know, which implies that some of them don't know, didn't know at the time this happens. It's like we get a picture into the reoccurring theme of God being a good, beautiful God, that it is about resurrection and life. And for those who may not know who God is or what God stands for, and life is brought and so that then they will know, I am Lord. Now, there's a cool parallel of this uh, in the story of Jesus. 
I'm not talking about his death and resurrection, actually. Another story um, John tells us, uh, and there's some parallels to it. What's interesting is there, it's different in two really different ways. There's, there's a different agenda. I mean, all writing has some agenda to it. Yeah, there, there was an intent for Ezekiel's vision that was, hey, to give hope for the, the, the nation of Israel. And it was right in there. Like, it was obviously a metaphor. Like, those events didn't actually happen with the bones. It was intended to be uh, an illustration of hope for that community. And, but of course, we can take lessons from it. Uh, the, the nation of Israel took lessons into the future as well, even after their return. But then uh, a different agenda here with John and a different audience. And I'm not talking about the audience he's writing to. I mean, what I mean to say is there was an audience. In Ezekiel's vision, like, he's there, he's alone, it's just him and the breath of, of the Spirit, and it's like, oh, cool, great lesson. With the tale of Jesus in this story, we get to see humankind interacting with this dichotomy of, of hope and faith, and over here, death and despair or grief or pain. And uh, we can see how we respond in different, different situations here. So um, I'm going to read through this. This is actually the story of the death of Lazarus. I, I will skip some verses here and there just to, you know, if they don't have much to uh, um, what I'm, we're talking about. But uh, so this is John 11, 1 through 45. All right. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, when I was practicing this earlier, um, I debated about doing different voices. Uh, <laughs> I love reading to my kids, and I managed to have a unique voice for every character. And uh, what they may have never caught on is that whoever the main character is, is my voice, because I assume they're going to do the most talking, so that's the least amount of work for me. Except I realized this morning, yes, I, I do Harry Potter, I do Ender Wiggins, um, but you know what? I do not do Frodo. I can't help but mimic the movie. So my voice is not in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But uh, when I tried doing different voices for this one, it didn't work out, because inevitably I was doing Hermione and Ron. So, uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Lord, the one you love is sick. <clears throat> when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus is sick, he stayed where he was two more days, which is an odd aside. You know, he loves them, so he stayed where he was. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. They were, of course, concerned. Here we have, like, the human element of it. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Now, they've seen miracle after miracle, and yet they're concerned. Skipping down to verse 11, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And then an epic, like, God-sized eye roll had to happen. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, great name, uh, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also, 
that we may die with him. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, hopeful, hope, faith, despair, death. Like, it's easy to flip back and forth. So on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now Martha refers back to like this Jewish belief. A day is coming where we will have bodily resurrection. And she said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And this is where John's agenda come in, comes in. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the seventh of seven major miracles with, with John, right in a row. And every one of them goes back to this theme. I am the life and the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. I don't think the order matters. <laughs> so, and that this is a present reality. It's like end times in the present and John's writing after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. We're talking like 50 years later. I don't know, I'm actually not totally sure. It's somewhere around the end of the first century John's writing this. So you can imagine how the church has already latched on to, oh, uh, bodily resurrection. And maybe they're still focusing on the end. It's like, no, this, what's important here is reiterate over and over again, leading up to Jesus' death, that this is a present reality I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died much like her sister. And you got to wonder, is this a statement of faith or blame? You know, if you had been here, you wouldn't have died. Or faith, if you had been here, you wouldn't have died. Or both. In the middle of grief, we can bounce all over the place. And in fact, truth doesn't really have anything to do with it. We're experiencing something that is beyond that, that is painful and hard. And we can jump between this, these com competing, competing emotions in our life of maybe even anger, frustration, denial, but also faith and hope. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. John 11.35, just Jesus wept kind of the exclamation point on the humanity of Jesus. If we ever wonder about him experiencing life in the full range of loss and emotions. And the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And they're maybe even wondering, is this Jesus weeping from love or regret? These guys, I mean... <laughs> If there's one like constant in human experience, it's that people will pile on. You know, there's faith, hope, 
life, and then there's death, despair, and trolls, right? This is, this is like forecasting the future of social media and our reality. They're going to hit on you when you're down, and truth doesn't help you. Because you know what? They're speaking some truth. He, he literally delayed two days. Like, he could have been there two days earlier, right? And he didn't. And they're like, hey, I'm just, I'm just stating the obvious. You know, like, he could have been here. Things could have been different. You know, uh, and of course, we have a negative bias. We might even self-blame. We, we pile on uh, when we're in people are in grief or in pain. Um, and sometimes the possibility of positive, a positive outcome is beyond belief. But moving on here, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Four days is pretty significant. In their tradition, that is way more than enough time for the journey from life to death. The spirit is not lingering anymore. There, it's not literally dry bones, but it might as well be. And there is this, you can feel a tension building between like, you wish, you want profound faith, you want hope, but there's still debilitating doubt and pain, and they're going to collide. Like, it's like, this can't happen. It's like, what are you thinking? You're opening the, the, the cave. It's been four days. But what if? What if? Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, Oh, this is the greatest aside of all time. This is like the, a Michael Scott moment in the, in the ministry of Jesus. Like, he's going to look at the camera. It's like, you know, I, yeah, obviously, but I said this for their benefit. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing there, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. I mean, his hands and feet, wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. A few bottom lines here. The, the bottom li biggest bottom line is life now. And Jesus represents resurrection power regardless of our situation, our circumstances, where we find ourselves. The impossible. And uh, our human nature, of course, is always going to waffle back and forth between doubt and possibility and hope. Uh, and then that Jesus is the object of this belief. Like, how do we access that? It is about belief. It's not a belief in a, a structure or a organization or a, a creed, but Jesus is the sole, sole object of that faith and believing. And we can participate in that life now, that the people there are present with Jesus, and it's available to us now with Jesus' resurrection. And the how, we can always get stuck in the how, just like with creation, Existence of life, we can get stuck in the how, and that's not the point. How does atonement work? How does salvation work? What's important is the object of our faith, and that is Jesus. And huge obstacles, huge obstacles, we get the example of the disciples have seen amazing things done, but huge obstacles can easily take our eyes off of what is possible. The obstacles represent restorative possibilities. And there's a last lesson. The next sentence, I didn't read the end of verse 44. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
grave clothes and let them go. Releasing persons and communities from the clutches of death demands something from us in the community as well. That it didn't end with him getting raised up. There was still something the more to do. He was still wrapped in clothes, uh, treated, however they treat the dead. <laughs> um, I, have a, I wanted to read a quote here. This is from Veronica Miles, a, a theologian and writer I came across. And it's a couple of paragraphs. It's really good. Resurrection and life are central to the meaning that we make for our lives, informing our, our sense of Christian vocation. In this respect, resurrection controls us as an urgent call, beckoning us to consider the possibility that those whom our world deems socially, physically, spiritually, and emotionally dead might live in a new reality. We pray for the power of resurrection in the lives of persons and communities bound in the, bound in the grave clothes of war, poverty, disease, injustice, systemic abuse, and systemic oppression. Releasing persons and communities from the clutches of death also demands something of us, as did Lazarus' resurrection of his community. Though Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb, he urged those who were alive and well, unbind him and let him go. Resurrected women, men, and children today also require caring communities that are willing to nurture and strengthen them until they are able to walk alone, to remove the grave clothes of self-doubt, social isolation, marginalization, and oppression, to tear away the wrappings of fear, anxiety, loss, and grief, so that unbound women, men, and children might walk away, walk, walk in dignity as creative agents in the world. It doesn't end just with Jesus, oddly enough, but we, as followers of Jesus, are choosing to leave as he, live as he did, to unbind those who are bound up, to fight for justice, to feed the hungry, to set captives free. I think I just said that three different ways. Um, <laughs> to bring healing and justice. To live with the values and the mission as Jesus did. So, as we contemplate Lent and uh, the life that we live in between these divine moments of life creation, seeking those things in our community to unbind those where Jesus has already brought life and to do that work. It's one last footnote to this is the next section is the plot to kill Jesus. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back and leads to the religious leaders saying, okay, whoa, whoa, way too much. The Roman government's going to come down on us if this gets too big. It's better that one man dies than a whole nation. And, uh, and they even plot to kill Lazarus. It's interesting that being raised from the dead is a good way to get yourself killed. So, <laughs> so but it's prophetic. I mean, John points out that really the religious leader who said this, it's better for one man to die, didn't even realize he was prophesying. But there's a little new, more nuance to that. I love the way the, another translation says it. It's expedient. It's, be, it's, it's like a convenient thing. You know, it'd be better for us to get this out of the way and dealt with. That power can fix this situation. And it's just a, a footnote of caution that when we value maybe the benefit of the, the group or the majority over the one, what is expedient 
is not always the way we want to go. If it doesn't represent the life Jesus lived and uh, his mission and values, then that can take us in the wrong direction. Expediency isn't necessarily the answer, and power often is what's going that way. So uh, let's pray, and then Steve's going to lead us in some worship. God, we thank you for your presence, and we invite you to help us be aware of where you're moving and what you're doing. Would you guide us in your life, giving miracles around us? Help us to be a part of your plan and your work uh, in unbinding those who you have brought life to. We thank you. Amen. mother's womb. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my name. Cause I've been born again to a family. Blood flows through my veins. And I'm not
I'm surrounded. I am surrounded by the arms of the Father. I am surrounded by songs of deliverance. We've been liberated from our bondage. We're the Amen. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll hopefully see you next weekend. Thanks for coming. <laughs>